started a new series today called Through the Lens of Worship. Uh, it is mostly guest speakers. Uh, this is actually the last time this year you'll hear either Terry or me speak in the main sermon slot. Terry, uh, your last time with Terry was last week I missed. And um, this is it for me. We have guest speakers from other churches for the next six weeks. And then we're doing an Advent series, which will be um, people who don't preach quite as often from within here. And hopefully a couple of people who will be their first time. Um, we're all very excited for that. Um, yeah, so it's a, it should be an exciting back half of the year. Now, this series, um, which was kind of burst between a miscommunication between Terry and I, but it's a wonderful one, um, is designed to, what we want to do is examine different aspects of the Christian life, as the title says, through the lens of worship. Um, we want to look at worship as something broader than just singing songs, even just broader than, the, like when we admit it goes a little broader, how far we'll let it go, but to embrace the fact that pretty much all of what we do as Christians can be looked at through a lens of our worship of Jesus. So that's what we're doing. I actually do not know what the next people are going to speak to. Um, once we decided who was speaking and when, I kind of stopped paying attention on purpose. Um, much the same way I stop watching trailers of movies I know I'm going to see because I'd like to be surprised. Um, so I'm very much excited to hear what people speak on in the next weeks, And I have no idea what it is, but I know it will be good. I've heard um, all of the men who are coming to speak over the next six weeks preach before, and they're all fantastic and all have something to bring um, from God to us. Um, so this series, um, last week I believe I listened to the recording, Terry said I was speaking on Uriah. I hope none of you came really excited for a sermon on Uriah, because uh, that's not actually what's happening. I had already changed my mind and just forgot to tell Terry. Um, I'm actually going back to what I had initially decided to speak on when we came up with the series. Um, I wanted to speak from a parable, but I backed off of that and went to Uriah, um, because we're very possibly going to do a series that will involve a number of the parables next year. So I'm like, okay, I'll just punt that back to 2018 and go with Uriah this week. But I just kept feeling as I was doing my preparation that Uriah was not the way to go. Sorry. But that this parable was what we should be speaking from this week. Um, it is not one of the more famous parables. Um, in my preparation, I wrote at least four different titles for it. Um, because I could never remember the correct one. It is the parable of the dishonest managers, the one that shows up in my Bible. Uh, it is definitely not in the same tier of fame as like the prodigal son. Um, how many people know which parable I'm talking to from the title? How many people can say which book it's in? It's about the numbers I was expecting. And that's because Mike read it this morning to his family. Um, it is not as famous because it only shows up in one gospel. It's in the Gospel of Luke. And it is notoriously hard to interpret. Uh, commentators love this one because uh, it has a few peculiar traits that just make it a little thorny. Um, it is so non-straightforward in its application that even amongst skeptics, which would put most of the parables into the church's mouth as opposed to Jesus's, they're kind of like, yeah, Jesus said this one because there's no way the church made this up. Uh, it's just too bizarre, too weird, too challenging. It has too many corners that a later edition would have sanded off. They're like, well, yeah, we'll give this one to Jesus. This full skeptics. Um, yeah, and you'll see why as we get into it. Um, 
It is one that for years I would read, and I'd read through it, and I'd go, huh. And then flip the page and keep moving. Not quite sure which way to go with it. Um, But it's one that has become very important to me, that the message of which has gripped me, and I think actually says something important to us today. Um, So if you want to turn to Luke 16, I can give a little bit of context for where this falls. Um, Luke, as a gospel, is part of really a two-part between the gospel of Luke. There we go. The Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, where Luke is trying to tell the whole story from the announcement of the births of John the Baptist and Jesus through Jesus' death and resurrection, the birth of the church, all the way up to Paul being in chains to face trial in Rome. It's a massive historical work across two volumes in the Gospel of Luke and Acts, written by a doctor who traveled with Paul. Um, Luke starts with Jesus is announcing the good news. He's announcing freedom to the poor. He's announcing that the sick will be healed. He's saying the outsider will be brought in. And the first portion of Luke very much shows that in action as Jesus is constantly healing people, casting out demons, feeding the hungry, and welcoming people who are the outsiders of Jewish society. Then, as in most of the Gospels, he makes a pivot after it's announced that he's the Messiah, and he starts marching towards Jerusalem, which gives just this long, sustained series of teachings as they move closer and closer to Jerusalem. And that's where he gives this parable. It's on the way to the cross. He's marching towards Jerusalem, towards his death, and he's teaching these people what they need to know. He's given up. In chapter 14, he talks a lot about the cost of discipleship. Chapter 15, he's talking about God's love for the lost and for the people who are on the outcast and how much he desires to bring them in. That's where you get your famous parable of the prodigal son. And then in chapter 16, he turns really to money and our use of our wealth and our resources. And that's where we find this parable. And I should have turned to it as well. Sorry. So in Luke 16... Starting in verse 1. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my manager is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails you, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in little is also dishonest in much. If then... You have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth. Who will entrust you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give to you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. 
For he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So to recap, we have two characters in this story. There's the rich man and the manager. And just off the bat, let me say this is a parable that is very resistant to being allegorized, if that's actually a verb. You can't easily turn this into an allegory. Even in the period, and by that I mean you can't make this represent something bigger in a sense. You can't make the rich man into the father and the manager into Jesus and somehow he goes about and he is reducing the debt that people owe to God. Um, this is a, because of a number of kind of prickly aspects, this is one that is very resistant to being turned into an allegory such that even when the church was in their very high, lots of allegorizing phase, they didn't do this one a lot. And it's just, it is a good manner of understanding this parable is to not try and make it say more than it's saying. It has a very pointed message. So as we look through this, we're looking for a pointed message. We're not looking for a broad, covering the entire scope of Christianity message. Jesus is telling a particular point in this message. And he's doing it using his two figures, a rich man and a manager. Now, the manager is our main focus. He's our protagonist of this story. And he's in a bit of a pickle. He has been caught squandering the resources of this rich man that he watched over. So he has, he's basically like, he's like kind of, I mean, in rough, normal terms, he's like an accountant of sort. He's a business manager. This rich man has a ton of resources, and he's placed this manager over some huge portion of them where he will manage it for him with the intention of bringing the rich man a greater profit. And what the rich man has found out, who somebody came and told him, is he is doing a very poor job of it. So the rich man basically tells him, okay, go put the books in order. You're going to be done. Um, And we get from this, we can infer a couple things. First off, this is most likely not a slave. This is a hired servant. Because his concern is not being reassigned to a bad job. It's simply being out on the streets. He also is likely incompetent rather than dishonest up front because the manager is going to give him enough time to go get his books in order. So it's, I mean, you don't have somebody who is swindling millions of dollars and you're like, okay, I'll give you a couple more days to get the books in order and then we'll talk about this. Now you cut that guy off immediately. Instead, he gives him a bit of time to do it. So it's more likely incompetence that's up front is causing the trouble. And he is certainly guilty of that incompetence. The manager hears, the rich man hears the charge, and he's ready to act. And the manager hears the charge and doesn't seem to at any point pause to see, how can I prove that I really didn't do this? He's also a man with limited uh, outcomes, options, sorry. This is basically, he's a guy who has been working what would be the equivalent of their white-collar job. He's got soft hands. He is used to the esteem that might come from a white-collar job. So he's looking, going, there is no way I'm going to go dig ditches and I'm way too proud to beg. So he's sitting here with a white collar job looking, I, I can't do blisters and I'm not begging, so I gotta figure something out. That's where this man is. And that's the framework from which he hatches this plan to continue in his little white collar lifestyle. Um, and you need to understand two aspects of the ancient economy to see why his plan succeeds. The first is the power these managers had. The idea in those age, 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 in that age, there we go, is that a manager basically acted as the person who they represented. 
It's like, as the manager is, so the rich man is done. I think how the actual phrase went. So if he, it's like a power of attorney, but even more robust. If he does something, it is as though the rich man has done it. If he sells this, it's as though the rich man has done it. If he forgives this debt, it's as though the rich man has done it. He has, he is a representative of the rich man who is assumed in all people who are dealing with him as being the rich man himself. And there is very little recourse the rich man has against that. Which is why when he finds out he is squandering his money, he's kind of stuck because this guy has done it. I mean, it's similar to the reason they won't let me sign contracts at work. Because in a sense, if I sign a contract, I can put my company in the line at least, but they have at least have the ability to go and make an argument that, okay, that guy really shouldn't have been able to sign that. Whereas in this case, they would just be kind of stuck. As the manager does, so the rich man was considered to have done. The other one is that there is a ethic of reciprocity. Finally, said so they were right for the first time today. Reciprocity in the ancient world. It basically is if I give you a gift, I can expect to receive a gift in return. I think the closest thing I can think of that shows up in our modern storytelling is mafia movies, where you go and you're in a bad state, so you go and you talk to the Don, uh, Don Corleone, and you're like, I need help here, and he does something for you. But you know that when he needs something, you don't get to say no. So we're in a similar situation here. There's an ethics of reciprocity where when gifts are given, there's an expectation of some sort of equal return. So he has these two facts. He has the fact that he is the manager of this money acting as the rich man himself. And he understands also that if he can give gifts, people will owe him, which is what he goes to do. He looks And he calls the people who owe this man money. And he has them say their debt to him. So you get a psychological aspect here. He's like, basically, how much do you owe? As opposed to somebody writing off, he makes them state how much they owe him. And these values are huge. Don't look at this as he's like a moderately rich man, and these are like peasants who owe him something. These are vast sums of money. The amount he gives proportion-wise is different in each aspect, but it's roughly a year and a half's worth of an average person's salary is how much he forgives each time. So we're talking, in, it's tough to translate it in modern terms, like 70, 75K on each one of these debts he's given. This is a, it really should be the very, very rich man, and he's giving, forgiving the debts of rich men. I mean, he is, this is rich talking to rich, and he is go, so he's going to these other people of great resources, and he's just forgiving them 70, 75K each. Just with a stroke of a pen. He goes, how much do you owe? They list off the vast amounts, and he goes, knock it down by 70K in your own handwriting, and I'll shuffle it on the papers, and it's as good as done. And you know who did this for you. And we're to understand that he, they list off two, but we can basically look at this and know that there's a string of these things. He's gone through 15, 20, 30 of these people, and he has had each one of them write off 70 to 80K. He is going out essentially owed over a million dollars in gifts that will be returned to him. He knows now that he goes out and he's on the streets. He can go to these people and say, remember what I did for you? And he'll be welcomed into their house and taken care of for a duration. That is his plan. And again, the story is pretty straightforward. There's not a lot of um, arguing about actually what actually happens in the story. The challenge is the responses. Because there's two responses that happen here that They aren't what we expect from our nice, pious Christian viewpoint. The first off is that the rich man commends the guy. 
This guy has just swindled him out of a million plus and he commends him, which strikes us as odd. And the second one is Jesus is holding this guy up as some sort of example, which really kind of makes us itchy. It's like, look at the dishonest guy. And we sit here, and that's why I get to, I get to this passage, I'd be reading and go, huh, the gospel doesn't seem to depend on this one. I'm going to flip the page and keep going. <laughs> it's just, it gets, it, it makes us itchy. And for that reason, you get a lot of, there's a vast array of interpretations of this um, parable. But the more conceivable ones that don't take the story at face value they start, they want to argue for a way that what the manager did was somehow right. And the two ways they generally do that is you make it either the manager is marking off his own commission or he is marking off an unjust, illegal interest. Jewish law had a lot of regulations around who and how much you could charge an interest. So the argument here is that the manager, Jesus is not holding up someone just dishonest. So the manager must be either knocking off his own commission or he is knocking off some illegal interest, or he's doing some balance of the two of those. The problem is, again, he seems to be called dishonest here not because of what, he didn't seem to be dishonest at the first stage. So when he's called dishonest here, it seems to be referring to what just happened. The other thing is, if it was his commissions, why not just keep it? It's one thing for somebody to owe you $70. It's another thing to actually have $70 in your pocket, and they're roughly the same thing. But the third reason is it starts to require a very intricate understanding of first century business practices to understand what Jesus is trying to get at. Um, it's, Jesus does expect, because he's speaking to a first century audience, that you would have some grasp of first century culture like the ethics of reciprocity or the fact that the manager stands in. But this starts to take it to some of the level where the person's supposed to be able to see like the portions of interest that are going there and understand that that must be unjust interest. And it starts to get into where you need like some first century MBA to understand Jesus' parable, which is far more complex than the rest of them are. Um, but people, it still has a persistence because it, we're itchy about holding up the dishonest manager as an example. Now, the funny thing is you can still take these and you almost get to the exact same interpretation as the surface reading. It just robs the story of a lot of its punch. And it's also unnecessary because Jesus is not holding this man up for his dishonesty. If any of you leave here and go tomorrow to work and you're looking going, okay, I was thinking about the embezzling. I wasn't really sure, but I mean, I heard about the dishonest manager and Jesus liked the guy, so I better act decisively and embezzle. Thanks, Jesus. That missed the entire point of this. This is not to hold up his dishonesty. He's not saying this is a good man. He refers to him as an example of the sons of this world, as part of their generation. When Jesus talks about the sons of the world, when he talks about something of the world, especially in contrast to the sons of light, so he's talking about this world versus light as some sort of not the same group, this isn't a compliment. Nor when he talks about the generation. When Jesus talks about the generation or the age, it's the same word in Greek. So it's like the era of people that you're living in. He's not saying, it's usually not a compliment to the people who are around him. How, much I, how long must I be with this generation? It is a, so it's not that he's holding him up as a good person. He's also tossing the rich man in there. 
And through the Gospel of Luke, rich men are generally not held up as pillars of good values. Um, Luke generally takes a very pessimistic view of rich men. The very next parable Jesus is going to tell also features a rich man. It's a story about a rich man and a poor man, and the rich man is so clueless to the poor man's plight on the earth that when they're in the afterlife and the rich man's literally in Hades, he looks across and sees the poor man and he still tries to get him to come take care of him. He wants him to come and give him some water because he's in pain and he still doesn't grasp the depths of his mistreatment of the poor. So Luke does not have some high view of rich man that you're supposed to take into this. And it's been through the whole thing. So in this group of the sons of the world who know how to be shrewd with their own age, Jesus is not holding us up exemplars of honesty and good values. He's making a particular point about their shrewdness, the way they deal with one another. And that helps us understand the rich man's commendation. I mean, think of this more in like a sports term. This is like when somebody steals a base in baseball, the other team does not go up in arms about the dishonesty of that act. Or a trick play in football. You, I can't believe you lied to us and faked a punt. <laughs> if it happens and it goes well, the other team, you just kind of got to sit there and go, you know, well played. And that's something of what we're getting here with the rich man. He is a rich man. He is not just a rich man. Again, he is a rich man of rich men. In the system of the sons of this world, he is on top. He knows how this game is played. He knows the way business is done in the world, and he can admire, even if it's angry, he can admire when it was done well. He can say with a smirk, well done. And it's, again, this is not supposed to be some super realistic story, so there's no point in wondering, did the manager and therefore go live happily forever after, or did the rich man kill him right after this? <laughs> it doesn't matter to know whether or not the, rich, the manager who somehow lives gets home and his wife is okay with this, because she doesn't exist. This is a story with a particular point, and the point is to show how the world knows how to interact with itself. What Jesus is asking us here, he's pointing to these people and he's not saying, see how dishonest they are. Why can't you go be dishonest too? He's not saying, see how they swindled each other. Why can't you go swindle one another? Why don't you swindle as well as they do? He's looking at them and he's going, look at these people. They understand the system they live in and they understand how to maximize that system for their benefit. You who live in a different system, why don't you do the same over here? They know this steward knew how to take this brief momentary control he had over these resources and give it away, in these resources that weren't his, and give them away in such to make sure that he was taken care of for the years to come. You who have momentary control over this life and these resources, why don't you spend it in a way that maximizes your life in the kingdom? That's where Jesus is trying for. It's not, yay, dishonesty is fantastic. It's not even, yay, shrewdness is fine. Go beat those guys at their own game. It is shrewdness. Why don't we apply shrewdness to the life and the way of the kingdom? 
Why don't we maximize our benefit the way the world does to the way of the kingdom? So that's the point of the parable. Um, And I am historically terrible in application in sermons. Um, And this is actually an exception. Uh, Mostly because the application is just so painfully obvious in this one. Um, It's a three-part application. And I just realized I just said I'm good at application. This is a fantastic application. I'm more meant this one just so easy even I can pick it up. Um, it is a three-part application. And this is also, as I was talking about Terry, I am not a person who tends to sell things very highly. Um, my general state on anything I like is I like it and your mileage may vary. I was like, there's two things I will, re- I will recommend unreservedly in my life. One is my dentist, who is fantastic. Mike knows. I will give it to you. Fantastic dentist. Best dentist I've ever been to. There is none that's equal. And I can't remember the other one. That's how low the list is. Everything else. My favorite movie, my favorite restaurant, my favorite food, my favorite music. I'm like, I love it. And you might. But this is something that if you apply, I guarantee your life will be better. Your life will be better now, but your life is guaranteed to be better in the long run. So three steps with a guarantee. First one, assess. We need to assess the situation we're in, and we need to do so soberly. Look at how the steward acts here. He is not sentimental. He doesn't get hung up on how much he loved the job and get teary-eyed and see this all through a haze of sentimentality. Nor is he deluded into thinking he might still have a chance here. He looks at the situation and he assesses it correctly. He understands and he looks at the landscape and he sees the tools he has clearly. I have a limited time with these resources. I have a culture where if I give something, I can expect something in return. And that door is closing rapidly. He assesses it clearly and he uses that to fuel his action. And in the fantastic chapter that Heidi read, we see a similar thing. Noah is told by God to build an ark because it's going to rain. And he looks around and assesses the situation correctly. Not because it looks like it's going to rain in 100 years, but it looks like he knows that if God has said something, he has faith enough to believe it is going to happen. So he assesses the situation based on that truth. Abraham is told to go to a land and I will make of you a people and you will be a blessing. And he Sees something. He does not even see the land, but he knows this voice that is speaking to him can make it happen if he listens. Rahab, the prostitute, sees an army coming over the horizon. She has heard of what they are going to say. She knows her people are being driven out. And beyond that, she knows something of enough that she can possibly get in good with them and their God and be accepted in as opposed to driven out. These people assessed the situation that was coming to them. We need to do similarly. I spoke a few weeks about the powers that killed Jesus, that Satan was aligned against him, that the power structures, the corrupt power structures and leadership of this world was aligned against him, and that the sin that lies within each of our hearts was aligned against him. And those powers still exist. They still control and guide and shape so much of what happens in this world. 
but we also spoke about how Jesus was victorious over them. They are the reigning powers, but they have an expiration date. And that means the things we do that are based foundationally upon those things, upon the power structures of this world, upon sin, they will crumble when this age does. But there's also a promise of a kingdom that's going to come whose foundations will not be shaken. And we are told that we can do good work now that will persist into the age to come in a way that I cannot get my head around, but there's a promise that we can take hold of. So we have to assess our situation. Step two is to act. Um, Proper assessment without action is absolutely worthless. Uh, G.I. Joe is right when he said that knowledge is half the battle. There is a second half that needs to be done. Um, And I say this as a person who is prone to overthinking, um, who is prone to sit and ponder and then ponder some more and then ponder and then the window has passed by and I'm still pondering. And I have to start pondering afresh because it's a new set of situations to consider. Um, One of the things I've managed to, I hope, grow up a little in the past decade is realizing that me figuring things out only gets me a little bit of the way and I actually then have to act upon that in a consistent basis. So assessment by itself is pointless. We must also act. The Greek word for do, it's the word we use to do or make, poiel, poiel, shows up nine times in this short passage. Doing is very important to the application of this. We have to make a proper assessment and also act. You can see the steward. He recognizes this lay of the land, but he acts quickly. If he had in some way, and he acts decisively, if he had in some way thought, you know what, maybe I can keep my job, maybe there's still a chance here, um, so I'll act this way and that way, I'll try to make things right while also giving away a portion of his money, He would have not gotten that much money and still made the landlord furious and gotten kicked out. But he saw the path and he acted decisively and shrewdly. And we need to do the same. So those are your first two steps. Assess the situation we're in and act decisively. And the third step is just really to do the first two. I'd written this as two steps. I realized that this is just absolutely impossible on a consistent basis. Jesus doesn't present this as though it's rocket science. Me telling you to figure out the lay of the land and then go act accordingly, is, that should, you should have known that walking in. That's how we live our lives. We assess situations and we act. Jesus knows he's not telling them something groundbreaking because he doesn't present it as though, look at how shrewd the sons of this world are with their own generations. Has it occurred to you guys that you should go do the same? No, he asks the question, why are they so shrewd and you are often so not? There's a question here of why are we less shrewd in dealing with the things of the kingdom than the sons of this world are in dealing with the, the kingdom of this earth? So if we know we should assess and we know we should act and we knew this coming in and we knew this every day of our life, why do we not consistently do it? And that's where, I mean, there's a ton of reasons, but there's two that stood out. And I'll close with those two. The first is that it's not natural. We are born in this flesh. No one comes into this world 
thinking, okay, the kingdom of heaven is the thing that will last forever and eternity. I will give from what I have to pursue that and achieve great treasures in the kingdom that is to come and had the world that Jesus is building now. That is not how my children exited the womb. My children live in a state where they steal from each other and then they yell at me when the other one gets angry because one of the other one takes it back from them. That's usually what happens. Rose takes it from Ezra. Ezra takes it back and Rose complains to me. That is the way they live the world. There is nothing in our nature that naturally wants to assess the situation for how do we achieve the greatest benefit in the kingdom of heaven. And there's nothing in this age that will consistently sow it into us. 1 Peter 2.12 has yet to make it into a car advertisement. 11, sorry, this is the correct one. Abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul by Alexis. <laughs> it's never going to show up. Most of modern consumer advertising is based upon the, the idea to sow in to the passions of your flesh because it will benefit your soul. You wake up in the morning, you are going to get catechized. You are going to get taught something. The question is what? We have to be intentional about what is teaching us how to act. And we know this in our regular worlds. Most of you are very successful at what you do. And none of you did it on accident. I mean, if Busby had played piano with the same fervor that I practiced piano in eighth grade, he would still be better than me. But he would not be where he is now. He would not make gold records at all. We know that in our lives, we have to pursue the things we do with a diligence. <laughs> we, have, we know that we need to pursue things. I, uh, my career is as much by accident as most people's. I took a degree in psychology, and somehow I ended up running sales management. Um, in many ways, by ac accident, but I also, through the years, I have diligently persisted in training myself to work Excel. Yes, I'm good. I do Excel, people. To understand the business world. I literally read the Harvard Business Review for amusement right now. Because, but it's because it's teaching me to be better at what I do in my job. We know this. We go to school to get trained in our jobs. We know to work on our marriages. But then sometimes, so often with God, we're like, I got the spirit within me. This will work out eventually. And it doesn't. I mean, it can in the long run, but it oftentimes it just becomes a withered vine. We have to pursue this with an intentionality because something is going to be teaching us on a consistent basis where and how we should be shrewd. And if we aren't pursuing scripture and prayer, and it's not just intellectual, it is practices, it's being here on a Sunday, it is raising your hands when you worship, it is singing to God whether you want to or not, it's fasting in a world that only preaches feasting, it's silence in a world that is constantly noisy. We have to do these things on a consistent basis or else we will be trained to do something else. We will never be shrewd for the kingdom.
And the second one, the second reason is we generally try to live for both places. And I'm not saying you try to live for both places. I'm talking about we. We all do it. We live in both places. I mean, that is true. We are people who are meant to live in this world, but not be of it. But we often try to sneak as much into that in as possible. You look at people who are shrewd. You look at the manager in this story. And again, you see a person who just pushes all of his chips onto that table. He sees the kingdom of this world right here. He sees the way to succeed in it, and he pushes his chips across. The people who are shrewd in this age live that way. They know how to succeed. They might rate the things in their life. It might be family, job, uh, friends. They have them, but there generally is something that is leading that cause, and they're pushing their chips in a way to where they can make me come out on top. We... Far too often in the church, we have our two kingdoms, and we realize we need to put a lot of our chips over on the Jesus thing, but we've got to get a couple over here to hedge our bets. We need to make sure that if this Jesus thing doesn't pan out, we're still doing okay. We are not people, generally speaking, of whom Paul's comment that if Jesus is only matters in this life, that we are the most of all to be pitied. Because, I mean, honestly, in my life, if Jesus was to disappear, I still have a fantastic job. I still am married to a wonderful woman. I have two good kids and a lot of friends who I like hanging out with consistently. And this becomes more and more of a challenge the richer and richer we we grow. And just because of age and success, we are a church that is consistently growing richer as we get older. We're moving into that age of maximum income attainment. And we have to be very careful that that does not crowd out the kingdom of God. As I said, rich man does not have a positive connotation in the books of Luke, but it's also not viewed strictly as a negative. There are people who give of their resources. There's rich, I think Lydia was fantastically wealthy in the book of Acts, also written by Luke, but she's a person who lives for the kingdom is the way it gets presented. There's people who give of their resources to the pursuits of Jesus in his kingdom. So it's not simply that we have to renounce all riches and go live vows of poverty in order to move forward in this world, but we need to be suspect of the riches. We have to be careful that as we get richer, we don't get, because what happens is this kingdom It becomes even easier just you keep shuffling a couple more chips across the table and your bets get a little more hedged because this one becomes more and more valuable and there's more to lose over here. And eventually you can end up having like one chip on the Jesus board. And you have been as untrue as possible over here. Again, rich is not a terrible thing, but it's also, it's why Jesus, it's not, we have to be careful. It's why Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And we are all, well, at least most of us, are rich people in this church. We have to be careful that it doesn't crown us. We have to ask ourselves hard questions. What do we consider in our life to be non-negotiable? What is it that if Jesus, if following Jesus was to cost us that thing, we would say, no, I can't go that direction. 
Is it our careers? Is it our children? Is it our children's careers and their success? I read a study, I think it was out last year, that 24% of professing British Christians didn't want their children to be Christians because it might cost them in school. Now, it says something about what was actually driving their profession. Probably wasn't that deep, but still. If we know that being a Christian will cost our children down the line, are we still going to push and pray and hope and call out to God for them to become faithful Christians? We need to consider the example of Moses. Because the truth is, this is a church filled with Moseses. We are people who are rich in this world. Moses was born into the house of Pharaoh. He was, a, he was an Israelite, but through the hand of God, he was brought to be adopted by the daughter of Pharaoh. He is in the house of Egypt. And this is Egypt when Egypt is the top empire of the world. Egypt was the America of that day. He is in the halls of power. He has every resource and wealth at his disposal. He is chief among the sons of this world. And had he stuck with it, it would have changed the line of Moses forever. This was a man that was from an oppressed class of people who has been brought into the halls of power. He has been adopted into this family. He can marry in this family and have kids that will be part of the Egyptian royalty going forward. He has everything to gain from betting on this kingdom. But what does he do? He casts it off. He saw that his privilege and his position there could exist only as long as he ignored the plight of his oppressed people. So he cast off his privilege and he threw his lot in with God's oppressed people. As Heidi read earlier, I can find it. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He refused to be one of the chief of the sons of this world. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He saw that the chips on this table were going to pass away. He saw that this, everything he could attain here, and he could attain to heights that none of us can reach. He saw that it was going to pass away, and he pushed everything in this direction and said, I'm going this way. And he went in, he denounced comfort, he denounced pleasure, he accepted the fact that he was in exile in this age, looking towards another city, and he threw everything towards that kingdom. He became shrewd towards the kingdom of God. And why? What sustained this? He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. 
He weighed things. He assessed his situation and he assessed it clearly. He saw that the wealth he had, as massive as it could get, was fleeting in comparison to the eternal wealth of the city that has foundations that will never crumble. He saw that the wrath of this age, of the mighty king, Pharaoh, the chief force of this age, that he saw the wrath that he could endure at that hands could not compare to knowing the invisible God. And he moved everything he had in this direction. He saw the worth of Jesus. This series is called Through the Lens of Worship because our lives are meant to be lived through a lens of worship. It is only through a lens of worship that taking up your cross daily makes sense. It is only through a lens of worship that taking the resources you have in this age and giving them to people who can't pay you back now makes sense. One of the things I was struck by this week, one of those things God just kept poking on me, poking on me, was the degree to which I crave acceptance and fear rejection. I don't know how many of you know my past, but I grew up moving a lot. I'm a socially awkward human being, and I don't make friends quickly. And I moved a lot, which was a horrible thing. And I moved in sixth grade, which is the worst thing you can do to a human being. Just take notes, people. And there's this part of me that felt like has always persisted to have a fear that if I am known and people see who I am, if I let them get close enough, I will be rejected and I will stand alone. I crave acceptance. I crave being held up. I crave not wealth, although I'm pretty okay with that. It's still a risk, but what I crave more than that is respectability. There's part of me that is constantly wanting to flip chips back over onto the other side of the table to maintain respectability, to be esteemed highly, to not be one of the strange Christians, and definitely not to be cast out of this world. But our call is to live shrewdly. Respectability in this age will fade. It will crumble It won't last. And we have the chance. We have a fleeting chance. This life is just a whisper in comparison to eternity. And we have a chance to take what we have now and push it onto that side of the table. To give it away. To live generously. To maintain our testimony in the face of a world that would try and squash it. To seek people for the kingdom, to proclaim the gospel without shame. But we only have a short window. We can assess forever, and then that window will close. And by the grace of God, he will embrace us. But we'll miss out on so much. We need to consider who we are, We need to consider who God has made us to be. We need to consider what he has given us. 
we need to consider the shortness of this edge and the long, enduring nature of the eternal kingdom. We need to consider how the riches of this age will fade and those will endure forever. We need to consider where we want to be rich. And then we need to listen. With that in mind, to the author of Hebrews, that since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, everything that would hold us down, everything that would prevent us from moving forward, and sin, which clings so closely to us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, upholding that lens of worship, upholding an eye that looks to him and lets him set what is valuable. The founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, because he did the same thing. He looked to the value of what the kingdom to be was going to be, and he looked to how long that would endure, and he saw something that is so much less, so much more actually than any of us would endure. He saw the loss of something greater than any of us would need to lay aside, and for the joy of what this kingdom was, he endured that loss. He moved all of his chips silence and said, I trust you, Father, let me go. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated exactly where we want to be, at the right hand of God. Amen.